Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Hadit.com Radio Show. Hadit.com Radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this 29th day of August, 2019. We're here with our co-host, Jay Basser. And today we have Dr. Batch and Bill Krieger on. And we're certainly proud to have them on, giving them giving us some words of wisdom. If uh, any of you would like to call in with a question or comment, our, comment, our call-in number is 347-237-237. 4819. Now that number once again is 347-237-4819. And then hit number one, and that'll put you in the queue with us. So once we spot you, we'll, we'll call on you and try to get your question or comment. So call in, folks. We'd love to hear from you. How you doing today, Doctor Batch? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We got a couple updates for you. Um, well, we've got good a couple deal. new law things, maybe, and I've got I've got something on uh, on CMP exams. So the guy last week oh. they had like seven days notice for a CMP exam, right? And yes. so he wanted me to get a he wanted me to get a letter for him and a DBQ. So I did that real quick in a couple of days, and he tried to upload he tried to upload the new stuff into the e-benefits before the CMP exam. And the uh-huh. benefits were, was blocked. It was blocked for new information. So the VA was trying to not allow any new information before the CMP exam. So what we did is I had him fax it, use the VA fax, fax number for the intake center to try and get uh-huh. stuff in before the before the CMP exam. So if anybody runs into that problem out there, if you're getting blocked for your e-benefits, adding new information, you know, use the uh, VA fax fax numbers. Okay, that's good to know. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, I think maybe to there. add to that, you should probably follow up with a call, confirm receipt, and at least make it part of the record that you ask that benefit counselor to see to it that the examiner reviews your evidence before the exam. Well, there you go. Won't guarantee it's going to happen but at least you document the fact that you had it, that you turned it in, and that you wanted it considered. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's important, too. Uh, uh, I don't care what you do with the VA. You need some sort of documentation or registration uh, or, uh, you know, a claim number or something. Uh, case number or anything, you can get a confirmation number, maybe uh, something there that you did make the effort and the material was there. And so what was that new some new thing about the cardiac law you talked about, huh? Oh, um, yeah, this month VA has revised the rating schedule. Uh, that portion dealing with the uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, I think it's uh, basically an effort probably best described as simplification. Uh, I think what their uh, VA's rating schedule, of course, dates back generations, and legal terminology evolves over time, and understanding uh, improves over time. And so VA from time to time revises the rating schedule to have it reflect the current terminologies and perhaps the um, understandings that have evolved in the interim. Um, So I think they've done the same thing for the heart and the old version of the rating schedule had a lot of diagnostic codes and you know it could be one for arrhythmia could be one for 
enlarged heart. It, you know, this even even um, blood pressure. So, what VA has done for evaluating the cardiovascular system, so you're taking all these criteria from all these different diagnostic codes and consolidating it into just a few. And the, the, the way that VA has evaluated the severity of heart disease in the past um, included more variables than it does in the new version. For example, um, a condition like um, hypertensive heart disease that results um, in a limitation of METs, that is the way they measure the uh, fitness of the heart, so to speak. Um, it also had um, a provision where, regardless of the METs, if you had an ejection fraction between 30 to 50 percent, the evaluation was 60. So you didn't need the METs if you had the ejection fraction. You could rate it that way instead. Well, what what's happening now is they're taking out the alternatives and they're evaluating everything, well, nearly everything, on just the mess, just the mess, none the other. Now, it requires that you take the stress test and have the met measured. And then the evaluation of the heart will be assigned in accordance with what the METs are reported as being on the stress test. Exception is, and this is not new, but the exception is if a doctor says you cannot perform a stress test, then the obligation is for the examiner to do an interview and estimate the stress test. Basically, I'll talk to you about are you able to mow the lawn? Can you climb a flight of stairs? Um, you know, some other um, activities that describe when you run out of breath, get uh, dizzy or, or fatigued or, you know, the typical symptoms if your heart's not working good enough, you're running out of energy. Um, what level of activity will bring on those symptoms? And then the VA, the evaluator, the rater, can use that MET estimate in lieu of the MET test. Um, it's it's uh, probably going to be a, a result in, in what I said before, simplification. So it will be easier for the raters to pick an evaluation because they don't have to consider multiple criteria anymore. So that's um, – I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, sometimes, sometimes it would help. If I was rating a heart case and I had uh, – evidence that was inconsistent or uh, mets that, you know, you kind of scratch your head and you're wondering, well, now, wait a minute, how, how did he get that when, you know, he's telling me the mets is, as he measures mets is, but the guy's a double amputee, so how did he do that? <laughs> yeah, you, 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 get, you get posed with these kinds of questions that brings one part of the exam into question. Well, if I, if I look at an ejection fraction, and the ejection fraction would give me the alternative where I can give them 100%. I can just go ahead and give them 100%. And the heck with the rest of the exam. Uh, now that option is, will be gone. Instead, uh, it's just strictly going to be on the Mets for everybody. And that's... Uh, 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 Bill? Uh, yeah. On that Mets met test, uh, mm -hmm. someone has a heart condition, and their doctor, heart doctor, heart specialist, would write them a letter stating that they're not uh, physically able to conduct a METS test, then that right. should be good enough right there, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. That's good enough to say uh, he doesn't have to do the METS test. And instead, the uh, rating activity now requires a METS estimate by the doctor. Because, we'll take a lawsuit. The the reason I bring that up because on my last CMP, uh, 
the doctor mentioned to me that he couldn't find anywhere in my records where it said I had ischemic or ischemic heart disease. And of course, that's due to exposure to herbicides. And uh, he said, so I don't know what I could do for you on your heart. Although I remember seeing that in my records, but there's so much stuff in my records. It'd be easy for a doctor to overlook. Uh, and I feel like I'm going to have some repercussions over that because it's I certainly not my will. I, I will fight them over. And with yes. this new, new policy, uh, next time I go to my heart specialist, I'll have him write me a letter, which I'm sure he will. Mm-hmm. He's already written me one. But uh, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Get, get the letter from your doctor saying this is ischemic heart disease. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only alternative. Um, mm-hmm. Understand... I've mentioned this before in the past. There is the practice of medicine for treatment, for care, okay? Uh-huh. And the practitioners and the physicians and the researchers develop a common language where words have specific meaning in that context. In VA, we have what I refer to as VA adjudication medicine. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> a couple of, a couple of adjectives for that because there are terms that VA uses that aren't used in medicine or terms in medicine that aren't used in VA that um, create a conflict between what is understood between the medical side of the house versus the adjudication side of the house. Right. One example of that, and, and Dr. Bash and I are going to talk about this further later in the exam portion, but if you look at the current DBQ for a spine and you look at the rating schedule, they contain the same language. And under 5243 diagnostic code of the spine, they talk about intervertebral disc syndrome. And the evaluation criteria is how many weeks the doctor has ordered you to bed rest. Okay? Two problems okay. with that. One is the medical world no user no longer uses the term intervertebral disc syndrome, so doctors are naturally inclined to check the block no. And secondly, the manifestations from disc disease are not typically treated with weeks of bed rest anymore. <laughs> okay. So the criteria established by VA back in 2003 for evaluating this disorder is using an obsolete diagnostic word and <clears throat> obsolete criteria. So basically VA examiners, and I've seen other examiners doing it as well, they check the box no because they don't use intervertebral disc syndrome and they check bed rest, no. Well, of course he hasn't. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> so, so you don't get any money for intervertebral disc syndrome or, or your disc pathologies. Um, so, and yeah, and here... 60%. What's that? Uh, yeah, the max, the max is 60, but in yeah. practical purposes, um, <clears throat> you don't see very many people doing it because people are not ordered to bed rest for that long of a period of time. <laughs> So in practical sense, uh, let me say this. I wasn't able to grant 60% under that criteria because I never once saw evidence that a veteran was ordered to bed rest for a period in excess of what would be required for 60%. So, you know, if you have the wrong diagnostic words and the wrong criteria, you don't get compensated But the flip side of that coin, and I'll just, before I get back to what I started on, I'll just say that when the revision was made in 2003, VA made clear that you rate neurological manifestations 
separate from orthopedic. So if you're measuring orthopedic, you're doing range of motion. So everybody gets you know, 10, 20, 40% for their what's now called the thoracic lumbar spine. Then if you have radiculopathy, you're getting radiating pain into the buttocks, down the leg, you're getting numbness, tingling, maybe even most severe cases, you're starting to develop a foot drop because you're losing control of your foot. Okay. Those manifestations are rated separate. So it's not uncommon for somebody who has this severe disc disease to have a 20% for his range of motion and a pair of 20% for each leg. Okay. (laughs) Because they are being affected. So you, you get to your 60 or even 70% with those radiculopathies added in or any others like bowel or bladder disturbance. Okay. So that's what I, I wanted to make clear, but when it comes to um, qualifying diseases associated with um, herbicide exposure, VA has redefined the medical term ischemic heart disease to mean other things, such as myocardial infarction, which we know is a clot, okay? Um, Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or hardening of the arteries, you see? So um, the examiner is thinking, wait, I'm looking for something that diagnosed ischemic heart disease, and I don't see it here. I see hypertensive heart disease. I see atherosclerotic heart disease. I see um, myocardial infarction, but I don't see the words ischemic heart disease. Well, VA put those other words into the manual so that everyone would know that these common cardiovascular diseases are what VA intends to include in the term ischemic heart disease. And so we shouldn't, I actually had this question come from a, a, a raider who came to ask me about that. What can I do? The doctor didn't find ischemic heart disease. I said, well, here, look in the manual. These are the terms that, that VA for rating purposes accepts to establish the presence of ischemic heart disease. Look on that list. <laughs> and there oh, it is. Okay. Uh, so even though the CMP examiner mentioned it to me like that, I mm-hmm. had already produced a letter stating I had hardening of the arteries mm-hmm. and a order stenosis. So, so that should have covered that, wouldn't it? Let me say it should. <laughs> it'll cover, okay. it'll, it'll, you got covered on, you know, yeah, it'll cover on you, your uh, on your atherosclerosis, but don't don't be uh, surprised. The aortic stenosis in itself is actually more of a bowel problem than it is a stomach. Well, yeah, and, it uh, is a bowel problem. They, uh, and they say that's kind of more, yeah, that's more hereditary than anything else. So I've already been down that road. <laughs> <laughs> well, build up my legs. But um, now here's here's how I used to resolve that debate. Okay, now we're looking at a disease, and we're saying to ourselves, okay, there's a genetic component here. There's a valvular disorder, and he also has uh, one from the list of uh, service-connected presumptive conditions for the heart. Okay. Now, if I don't see the answer to that in the record, then the manual instructs to ask the doctor to explain and to say, can you determine how much of disability results from each? Can you apportion a degree of disability between them? In my experience, that's going to be real hard to do in accordance with the benefit of the doubt requirement, if you cannot determine what degree to apportion between the uh, 
service-connected versus non-service-connected condition, then you must attribute all manifestations to the service-connected condition. Uh, That's the rule. Oh, That's we have a caller in here. Uh, we have a caller in here. Let me try to bring him in. I got you. Uh, caller, uh, 404 area code, uh, you have a question or comment? Oh, they left. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Well, Bill. let's hope he got the answer. Let's hope well, he got the list of building building while he was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Bill, back back to those maps. They're like a, they're like a measure of oxygen consumption. So, like if um, like we talked about guys that are you know paralyzed or amputees, they can have heart disease. And so, in those cases, since they're not going to be able to do much in the way of that, and they might not be able to really measure things like walking and mowing the grass and so on. You think the VA? You think the VA will go back to the some of the older things like arrhythmias and heart size to help, like if it went to central office maybe or something? No, at this at this time, this month, VA has stepped away from rating them on alternative bases and consolidating them. Uh, now I'm making a very broad explanation here, and and for each case, you look at the diagnosis present and compare that to the new criteria, the rating schedule, and see which way helps the veteran the most. Mm-hmm. At least that's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay. Now, um, the thing is that um, this is going to speed the adjudication because there are fewer criteria mm-hmm. for the for the rater to explore. And the Rating software. Uh, I explained before that you know it, it's not totally an exercise of judgment involved here on the part of a rater. When the rater transposes the data from the DBQ into the software, that software creates the evaluation. So it's. It's not like the Raiders sitting there, well, yeah, this guy's got uh, so many Mets, but uh, he also, you know, he doesn't seem to be well able to overcome them, so maybe that more nearly approximates 60 instead of 30. Okay? That's not the process. The, the Raider takes the data, the Mets, off the DBQ, puts it in the computer, and the computer says, this is 30, okay? Um, are there so build opportunities for overrides? Yes, there are, but nobody wants their work reviewed by central office because yeah. they're afraid mm-hmm. they'll be criticized and found an error and you know, lose their job. So, <laughs> so if the patient can't, yeah. if they can't do the Mets, if they can't do the Mets, then, say, for example, I give them a Met of three and the VA doctor gives them a Met of five or ten or something, We'll have that debate amongst experts again, right? Something like that. Okay. If we're talking about MET estimates, then the rater is required to look at the two estimates and then read what that uh, doctor has to say about how he determined it. And the one with the better explanation is of greater value. Does that make sense? Okay, like like if a doctor says, I estimate it to be three Mets. Mm-hmm. And that's all he says. Okay. But the VA examiner says, well, it's three Mets because he can't up uh, get up from his chair and walk across the room without getting shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's three Mets. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so... So it's it's all about um, how that examiner developed the opinion as to what that met equivalent is, and that will determine the greater value. Bill, how would that say work? It's supposed to. Okay. How would 
how would a condition like orthostatic hypotension come into play with that? You know, if the veteran's oh. got a weak heart and he stands up and his blood pressure drops sure. over 20 points every time he stands up. Yeah. Would yeah. that be related anyway? That's a medical that's a, question, that's a, but I'd say that's a what? quite possible. That's a one, maybe. Yeah. Might be a med of one. Bill's got to go to the Mets, right? He said you don't really yeah. take the diagnosis. Well, the yeah, thing is, the right. thing is that the hundred percent evaluation kicks in at three, so we don't, you know, for rating purposes, yeah. if it's three or less, okay, if it's three point one, yeah. it's sixty percent, but if it's three or right. less, it's a hundred percent. Now, how now how how do they actually do the, the measurements for the Mets? Because I've always been under understanding, and uh, you know, working with the heart cast and labs and things like that. That you know, if you have a cardiac catheterization or echo, and they want to actually measure your heart function, the actual golden rule for this is the ejection fraction. So I don't see how they're getting away with going around that. And uh, yeah, you know, that's taking it out. That's to do. Yeah, they're they're taking it out. Assumption. It, yeah, it, I mean, that's, that, but that's probably going to be challenged in court, and they're going to lose. Huh? Might be a fun they're debate to have. Be, yeah. They're going to be challenged in court, and they're probably going to lose because the gold standard is the ejection fraction. That's what the cardiologists use to actually determine the strength of your heart. Remember, how many remember I said earlier, there there is medicine for treatment mm-hmm. and care in the medical community, and then there is VA adjudication medicine. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So, so in VA adjudication uh, medicine, for rating purposes, up until this month, a f- ejection fraction less than thirty percent was a hundred percent. An ejection well, fraction between true. thirty yeah. and fifty was sixty percent. Okay. Yeah, that's true. And and that's so now they're taking that out, and they're going. So Bill, this is a man. This is a, Bill, this is a manual yeah. change, right? It's not a. Yeah. No, this this is a regulatory change. Really? Right. Yeah. That's all yeah. the federal reg? Yeah, that, that's the 38 CFR, part four, of course, uh, 4.104 oh. is the evaluation for cardiovascular disease. And uh, like I said, that was just changed this month. Um, oh, cool. And they, we'll bring of course, in the federal it. register... They have all of these discussions about how and why and uh, what their reasoning is for these uh-huh. changes. And um, they're basically saying, yeah, well, all that other lab stuff is nice, and, you know, but these studies indicate that METS is the really thing that only counts. So, so, yeah, understand. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, guys, okay? Yeah. In other, in other words, what I'm understanding is that the uh, injection fracture don't carry the weight that it used to, or it don't carry any weight. That's a clear understanding. <laughs> that, that's Tip what I'm Nothing set in stone until the final adjudication is made. Now, um, the one point is this. Um, the provision uh, changed this month. So all claims pending before the revision are entitled to be reviewed under either the prior version or the newer version, depending on which works better for the veteran. So if I have a, if I have a case before me and I see, um, well, let's say we have heart disease and we have a, I'm just trying to think, of, okay, we have a, a MET of um, seven, okay, but we have an ejection fraction of 45, all right? <clears throat> now, under the new rules, Mets of seven entitles the veteran to 30%. Under the old rules, the ejection fraction entitles him to 60%. So he's entitled to get the 60% from the date of claim associated with that claim. 
And because the change in the rule provides less benefit to him, it does not apply to that veteran. And he keeps the 60%. The other way around, if a veteran had a, oh, let's say an ejection fraction of 60, but his Mets were five. Okay. Now, his Mets provides more than his ejection fraction. So for the period from the data claim up to the change in the rule, he will get the 60 based on five METs. And then under the new rule, it will become effective the day of the rule change, and he will retain the 60 under the new rule. Did that come out okay? So basically, so anybody rated previously under the ejection fraction criteria We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. they're, they're okay. They're not going to be reduced or anything. But any new claims over past this implementation date will be evaluated to on the new criteria. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And I, I had to, I had to help a lot of younger raiders understand that a change in the rule does not mean that you reduce the vet. You can only reduce an evaluation based on improvement of the condition, not a change in the rules that are less favorable. And so it was, it was, it was tough to teach because they were taught coming in um, to just take what you've got on the exam, compare that to the rated schedule in front of your face, and assign the rating, which is the way the computer is programmed, Okay. And you have to take the additional time to think it through and say, when did the rule change? <laughs> okay. So that's, um, that's, that's something that uh, takes a while for, for folks to understand and uh, takes a lot of work and a few examples before it starts to, to sink in. Um, so I, I had one decision review officer come to me one day and, uh, seek my uh, second signature approval on a severance of service connection for torn meniscus. Really? I mean, why on earth would you sever service connection? It was a case of a claim for an increased evaluation. Well, what had happened? The veteran had a claim for increased pending. By the time it got to our office for a decision, which at the time, of course, went all the way up to the Board of Veterans' Appeals, through a new exam, and back again. VA changed the manual for the evaluation of the knee and put in a rule, until it was overturned, that you can't be compensated separately for a meniscus condition or anything else. If you're evaluated for meniscus, you don't get any other evaluation. That was VA's temporary manual provision. And that happened right in this interim period. So this raider wanted to sever the meniscus because it was assigned a separate evaluation in violation of the manual. So I had to help her understand, no, it was not an error because the decision to separate them was made before the rule changed. And if you want to accuse somebody of making an error, it has to be based on the rules at the time of the decision, not the current rules. Okay, so it wasn't an error. And it, it wasn't too often long until the, the court was invited to review that and set it aside. And so um, I haven't checked today, but if they haven't yet, I would expect that they've removed that from the manual so that you can get separate evaluation for the meniscus so long as you're not overlapping symptoms. And so that, that's how that, kind of, that stuff kind of works. Um, so that, that's... Uh, you know, we went so far afield. Oh, we were talking about the definition of ischemic heart disease. <laughs> That's where this all <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so um, the actual diagnosis on an examination is only part of the evidence. The rater is required to consider all of the evidence. And so if the manual 
says that myocardial infarction and arteriosclerotic heart disease or coronary artery disease are defined as ischemic heart disease, then any one of those diagnoses entitles you to service connection. Well, that sounds all right. Yeah, uh, the thing is, you know, this deep in the weeds is hard for this new core of young raiders because they were taught to transpose data into the computer and accept the results. And they, they haven't had enough time and experience and haven't been taught. Take a minute. Think about what the rating schedule said in 2008, for example. <laughs> and that can influence your decision. Um, so it, it takes a, a bit more skill than just transposing data. Um, my fear is that with the increases in simplification, automation, that the goals that uh, this was under Secretary Shinseki's watch, his goals were to adjudicate them faster and more consistently because VA was taking too long, and depending on what part of the country you were in, you would get different results. So it was a good goal to make them faster and more consistent. To do that, they created this automated rating process. So the raters can transpose the data, get the results, put out, pump out the rating in a very quick manner. And that goal is being achieved. And consistency is being achieved because now you don't have like uh, somebody sitting in Pittsburgh, who has a certain understanding of the rules, making an adjudication less favorable than someone in, um, I want to pick a good one, Fort Harrison. They got some good raiders out there. Um, They get a a greater rating because they understand the rating criteria better. Um, Now, that by mechanizing it in this way so that the computer is making the decision. You reduce that geographic inconsistency. So both of those goals are substantially improved by the automation of the rating process. What's lost is how do you bring that depth of knowledge and understanding of the effects of a disability on an individual's activities when it's really not programmed. And so like that's quite into, a trick. That gets mm-hmm. us into how we, how we do our work, right? How we try and do our case analysis. So yes. one way to do that yes. is through, 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 the, through the package we built. So we build a package. You know, some, uh, some people are just doing like one and done projects, so they do one DBQ and one Nexus and call it a day. But if you do, you know, do a holistic whole body analysis, a lot of these different codes will cross and interact and you'll get a more comprehensive look at it. So we do, we do a DBQ for all the different organ systems, and then we do a nexus for all the systems, and we do these lay letters, right? The lay letters to give you another look at what you're talking about there, right, Bill? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's so important. Um, and, and a lot of people were taught to follow the documentation rather than follow the evidence. The law and the regulations are clear. The VA must consider, when making a decision, must consider all the medical and all the lay evidence. It's not limited to what's documented. And so, um, one of the things so mean, we can relate this back to uh, herbicide exposures. Um, I was often I was assigned for a while to handle the Nemer cases at the office, and uh, people were bringing cases to me and say, "Well, you know, he said he went ashore, but 
It's not document. Let me see what he said, okay? And if you, if you have enough experience, enough knowledge of the circumstances, place, types of service, you can make a pretty fair guess um, without speculating, really. It's just, is it likely as not? Is it more or less likely? Um, and, and you can do that because you can understand the circumstances that person experienced at that time and make a judgment about, does that sound reasonable? You know, I mean, like, like the army cook who said he, he flew food up to um, Quezon and was shot down there and he had to stay there during the Battle of Quezon. Oh, really? Well, I can just look at his DD 214 and see that he arrived in Vietnam the year after the army returned Quezon back to the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) But then you have the opposite circumstance where someone says he was sent aboard the aircraft carrier at Yankee Station and that his plane landed at Da Nang and he transferred over to a hop and flew out to the carrier. So he set foot in Vietnam. Okay. Well, he had been denied. I think it got, by the time it got to me, it had been in the system for like 10 years, okay, on the basis that there's no documentation saying he set foot in Vietnam. Okay, I don't need documentation. What he said was, and that's evidence, his sworn statement was he set foot in Vietnam and took a hop after the carrier. Okay, is that consistent with circumstance, place, and type of service? Yes, it is. Because those ships were either serviced at Yankee Station, either from Manila or Da Nang. Guess which which is a lot closer. (laughs) (laughs) But I know from historical context and seeing so many official documents that did place an individual at Da Nang and taking a hop to the carrier, okay, I saw so much of that over my career that I know that that's consistent with many service members who joined a ship after it already sailed. Of course, I also knew that in 1966, we did not have an aircraft capable of taking off from California and landing on an aircraft carrier deck in the South China Sea. Okay. (laughs) So, So, you know, it's that kind of insight that makes a difference. And um, that's why that lay evidence can be crucial. So, Bill, what I do yeah. a lot of times when I do my DBQs, I do the same kind of thing. Like, well, you know, the spine, we're talking about those sections where it says radiculopathies, where it says other types of symptoms. So those boxes that allow me to write in there instead of just check the squares, how does the reader deal with those? Is that helpful? Because I could say it might have, you know, bowel and bladder dysfunction or, ED and that kind of stuff expands the expands the DBQ and takes it out of the automation maybe right right that's why our process the methods we're using are so helpful to both parties VA and the veteran because if you take a one and done approach on the spine and you give a spine DBQ it gets to the radar. The raider does not have any evidence of radiculopathy that may be separately compensable. Well, let's see. Am I going to? I've got to. I've got to produce. I've got to make these decisions four times a day. Okay. And I don't. I don't get credit if I defer it. Am I going to defer it and say, Yeah, okay, thanks for that, but we need another exam because we got to figure out the radiculopathy. And then it'll go back through the system all over again. And it'll get rated when that evidence of radiculopathy has been clarified. Or, with our approach, we know that we have to evaluate those complications. So we'll give a stack of DPQs all at once on all of the conditions that are related to the primary condition. That way, when it hits the raider's desk, the raider is able 
to say, okay, I've got every manifestation I need to evaluate every complication of that disc. Here's your check because he's under pressure to get it done fast and now. And the temptation is to, is to accept a less than fully complete exam so he can get the point and not develop for the ridiculosity. So you can run into that. In fact, oh, my God, I just reviewed a case this week from 2009 where that very thing happened. They did not fully develop for all complications of that veteran's spine disease. Now, as a result, they gave him a subsequent exam, and they assigned some radiculopathy. And guess what effective date they used? The exam date that established the radiculopathy. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, the veteran wrote on his original claim in 2009 that I have back trouble and leg trouble. Okay? It wasn't until 2013 that VA finally got around to realizing, since the Board of Veterans' Appeals ordered them to do it on remand, that they have to give him a neuro exam to evaluate the radiculopathies. Once they did that, then they had the evidence that shows, oh, yeah, the legs are not part, it's not a problem with legs. The legs are okay. It's a problem with the nerves from the sciatic nerve branch that's causing it. And so the effective date should not be the date of exam. It should be the date of claim back in 2009. We're going to try to get that for them. Um, so so that, that, remember I mentioned before that when I was representing claims, they tend to go a little faster, a little better. And that's why. Because I know what the reader needs. And I satisfy the reader's needs. And so, so cases so I represented were done quicker and better because it was very much in the reader's interest to do so. The way so we good. do it, yeah, try to get it all covered to start with. So some of the uh, some of the places now are, guess, I guess, trying to be sort of dissuaded from doing examinations. Like you said, the reader comes across his desk and might need two or three different sort of DBQs for the spine or for the TBI. And in the old mm-hmm. days, they might have sent them out to do that, but now to try and be speedy, they might just overlook that aspect and go forward with an incomplete um, workup for secondary, right? Yes, and and if the let me let me just discuss evaluating orthopedic disabilities as an example. Okay, now the court has been asked to review VA BVA decisions about evaluating joints like knees and elbows, okay, many times, many times. And they come out with decisions and and they say, okay, well, VA, you have to consider this or you have to do that. And that's a new lawful precedent, precedent because no court has ever said that before. And so now the lawful precedent for example, in DeLuca, you might remember that from 1995, um, DeLuca was saying that it's not enough just to measure how far the joint bends. You must consider other factors such as pain, endurance, speed of motion, in coordination. Okay, so... 15 years later, 2010, I'm now a decision review officer, and VA is offering up some updated training on orthopedics, and what do they do? They teach, okay, DeLuca says, <laughs> and this is a precedent now. Well, if you really read what DeLuca said, the only thing DeLuca said was, VA, you have regulations. You must make a decision that is, in accordance with your regulations. And your regulations require you to consider all of these factors. Pain, limited motion, functional loss, um, incoordination, all those sorts of things. And so that's what the Lucas said. And so they, they don't understand that, okay, yeah, it's a new legal precedent. However, 
it was law prior to that because it was in your regulations at the time. Those regulations have been in place since 1933, okay? <laughs> so, so what happens is this. The DBQ prompts the exam, and it says, okay, is there additional law on use or during flare-up, okay? And 99.9% of the time, what does the VA examiner say? He checks yes. Many times he says no. But for those who check yes, there is additional loss during the flare-up or on use. The next thing is, how many degrees of motion do they lose during the flare-up or on use? And the answer is, well, I don't know. He's not having one, so I can't observe it. And they, they've done that. They're still doing it that way. Okay, so as a raider, I can't fill in the blank. I'm not permitted to say, okay, the examiner says it's going to be worse, but I don't know if that shoulder pain is going to limit him to 45 degrees or to 90 degrees. I don't know. So I don't know whether or not to give him the higher evaluation um, based on use or doing flare-ups. That problem has not been solved. It hasn't. Now, what I would do and what I encouraged other raiders to do is this. You look through the record, you find examinations. Some of them show more limitation than others, okay? Well, if one of those examiners is saying, yes, the patient is having a flare-up, then that shortened motion is obviously to me represents what it's like during the flare-up. So I use the higher one. And so that's what the key. What I'll do oftentimes mm-hmm. in my DBQ, say for the spine, if the patient has a flare, I'll just write out in the boxes, flare up, you know, pain at rest, and put zeros, stuff like that, so you can explain the flare up and what the, why the range of motion is so low. Being specific, yes, yes, being specific. So then I'm just looking at the I'm looking at DBQ for TBI, for example, you know, and they're saying, you know, which is actually the internal one for the VA. And they've got a section on there that talks about, you know, it says check these different things, you know, motor dysfunction, also complete joint spine DVQ. You know, hearing loss, please complete tinnitus DVQ. You know, seizures, please complete seizure disorder DVQ. You know, so that's the way all these things should be done when you have the different sort of organ system problems within the spine or the brain. You should have all these accessory DVQs, right? Exactly. Exactly, and and it's prompted to do that. The system is has the prompts to get the examiners to do that, and you get the raters to ask for it. Uh, same thing with diabetes. You have a gen med that gives you the diagnosis, identifies the complications, and then you get the specialists doing all the specialty exams for all the complications. And, oh, by the way, we could expect uh, more than a few thousand of those coming in once um, – H.R. 299 is implemented by VA, and we start getting these, let's call them the 12-mile blue water veterans. Yeah, Um, yeah, there's going to be thousands of claims that need to be done over now based on that law change. We we might recall that Procipio v. Wilkie was was, um, decided in the Fed Circuit last uh, January. January 20th, 2019. And as a matter of interpretation of law, the court said 12 miles, 12 miles. But in the interim, Congress enacted and the president signed into law, H.R. 299, now public law 116.23, signed on uh, June 25th. And so now the law is uh, you're presumed exposed if you went within that 12-mile limit of shore. And 
you know, that's going to eliminate all that debate we used to have about whether or not one bay versus another bay was covered or not covered. You know, the, there was a case in the court a few years back uh, called Gray, and uh, the problem was that uh, the VA could not explain to the court why they would rule one bay in and another bay out. And, of course, Da Nang was a very big bay with a lot of people, and, of course, that was ruled out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so VA couldn't explain to the court why one bay would be in and one bay would be out. And so H.R. 299 eliminates that, and it, it's now 12 months. So basically all the bays are going to be included, and VA is going to have to re-adjudicate all of those claims that was over the fight of the bays. Um, and then all of these diabetes claims are going to come forward, um, and they're going to need these multiple, multiple DBQs for identifying and evaluating all these complications of diabetes. So there's going to be a lot of work next year. <laughs> hey, Bill, can you, the last couple of minutes, this idea of probative weight, you know, I try to explain to the veterans that we want to have the lay letter be consistent with the DBQ, to be consistent with the nexus letter, to be consistent with the testing. Sure. So, sure. so if all that stuff lines up and one examiner says that they have, you know, normal range of motion and the, the x-rays are positive and the patient says he has swelling, you can't get out of bed. And, um, how, do you, how, do you, uh, how do you weight that? Do you try and look for consistency or how do you? Consistency is a factor. When, when the veteran says, okay, I'm, I'm this disabled, I can't do these things. Um, but then... At, in the treatment records, says patient's well, system's normal. <laughs> you know? yeah. Okay. Right. You know, it, it sounds like on the on the claim form that and and what he's telling the VA examiner is, you know, that, my golly, how could this guy bear to live? You know, it's just so bad, so much pain, he can't move. Oh, golly, he can't do anything. All right. DBQ. Then you look in the treatment positive. records, private or VA, and you see that, um, oh, well, there was a strained his shoulder last week playing volleyball. <laughs> you know, okay. So that, that's kind of an inconsistency. So now you've got to retreat more to what you can actually um, assess objectively instead of as subjectively. Which now, might be the DBQ. It, might be the, yeah. yeah, now a DBQ could be done on a good day or it could be done on a bad day. Okay. And we've got to look to the record in general to see whether that, which it more likely represents yeah. and grant the higher whenever possible. Now, they, they don't teach this. They don't teach this to new graders coming in. Um, and so uh, being able to understand why if one examiner says um, the shoulder goes to um, – 45 degrees, and somebody else says it goes to 110 degrees. Why the difference? Okay, well, well I'll try. Just... Like in my nexus, I'll try and referee that. I'll say the exam says this, the x ray says that, Dr. Jones said this, it was different. The patient says exactly. that. Try and ref- referee. Exactly. You point to those events in the record that support your conclusion. Mm-hmm. That makes you this, your opinion tight. Um, no. It would, you know, particularly if I've got somebody who's an MD, put, explains the medicine to me, explains the evidence that points to it, and then I've got a VA examiner that's a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, who says, it is because I say so. Okay, I'm going with the private doc. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Oh, well, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we have. <laughs> Bill, well, how much? I hope somebody benefits. <laughs> Bill, how much did the BA give you to run to run you off? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, uh, you know, decision to retire is never just one thing. Um, you know, it was it was sometimes frustrating um, to. You know, um, the pressure to do 
many cases, and that was more important than applying all the knowledge and the depth of understanding that I have. That was a, that was a source of frustration. Bill, just don't, say I bribe, just don't say I bribed you to leave, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, uh, you know, I had real bad ankle pain, and I decided to get a new ankle. And this just all kind of fell apart at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's easy to do. But uh, Bill and I worked together. We started in 96, right, Bill? Yeah. Yeah, 96. That's a day. Well, six, you made a good team. And yeah. by golly, uh, I hope you keep doing good for veterans, that's for sure. I certainly hope so, too. And I sure well, glad to be here and be able to share. Uh, Dr. Bash uh, or, or Bill, you guys want to give out your information here? Yep. Uh, you know, Dr. Bash, Google Dr. Craig Bash or Veterans Med Advisor or call Skip. My schedule, guys, 925-381-7561. Skip again, 925-381-7561. Bill kind of has access to people through me, but we work together as a team, and then Bill can talk to people, and away we go. Yeah, Doc and, and Skip, he sort of uh, they sort of um, select which cases they want me to review. Well, that's good. And it, it's good that we have a team out here that is working together and and uh, helping veterans. Uh, and that's uh, that's always important because a lay veteran, you know, a new veteran coming along, starting out, I don't see how they're going to do it without some, some proper help. That's David. David and Goliath, you know, VA has a 4,000-person team. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Four. laughs> right? 4,000 employees, whatever it is. That's, that's so true. And, and they know every trick in the book, and you have to know them just as well to deal with them. And it's going to hang in a long time. Yeah. Keeping your back straight because they'll they'll scramble your brains if they can. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But that's like Bill says, don't give up because it's kind of a marathon. You have to do quite a few iterations. That's right. Yeah, I've seen a lot of them give up. But and I tell you what, I'm sad. I'm sad to say it, but I've seen a lot of them die. Well, yeah. That that, is that's always that's that's a hard reality that that you have to that you have to live with in this business. And you're trying to help folks, and you know. They, well, at least at least now, Bill, the spouse can carry on with the claim if they'll do it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That is. If you have a spouse, you have a spouse. Yes, that that's not much of a consolation, but it is better than nothing. Used to the claim died with the veteran. That was a that was a crime shame. Yeah, I have a couple of my written medical opinions that said this guy's going to die like in two weeks, you know, from my medical judgment, and they still passed before we got it done. It's unbelievable, man. Oh, well, nobody wants that diagnosis. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. <laughs> that's, that's something that, from a medical standpoint, is really nice because we can, you know, the rating is the rating and there's monetary things, but it has a big impact on people's care because you get the right diagnosis and you get the right treatment in the hospital and, um, you know, get better care. It can make a big difference in longevity. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. Doc, uh, Doc it, is humble. He he has saved lives. Yeah, it, he has. It's wear and tear on you like you wouldn't believe unless you've been going to it. And uh, 
Mm-hmm. We know a lot of them have, so uh, they can relate to what we're saying. <clears throat> well, with that then, I guess we'll have John close out the show, and we look forward to having you guys back on. This has been a real informative show, for sure, and we really appreciate it. Appreciate you having us. Yep, thank you. See you later, Dr. Ashman. Okay. Thanks for coming on. Bye. You've been listening to the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Hadit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of Hadit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Bachelor Show. Bye, poor old.